And yeah, that's the whole secret to my baked eggs. To your what? My baked eggs. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, we were talking about that last episode, weren't we? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Good to know. I will keep that in the vault. How are we doing today, Cohen? I am doing okay, and how are you doing today? Oh, well, you know, I had a nice little spot of yard work that I tried to get done as quickly as possible early this morning because I knew it was going to be hot as the underside of Satan's scrotum by 10 a.m. And you were, I assume, correct. I don't venture out in the midday heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it... it, it it was actually not bad, but I'm thankful that I did not wait until later in the in the morning or early afternoon to do it. Yep. All right. Yeah, because you know how summers get in the D.C. metro area, like, yeah. right around this time. I not know fun. full well. Yep. They are almost as bad as the summers at home. Yeah. Miami. Yeah. yeah. But um, in any event, this is Cast in the Net. This is your go-to podcast to hear about movies that may have gotten a limited theatrical release, if they got a theatrical release at all, but they are available on your handy-dandy streaming platforms. So however you like to enjoy movies in the comfort of your own home, those are the movies we're going to be talking about. I'm Ken Kay. This is Cohen. You know what we came to do. Yes, we came to kick ass and... Review Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga, and we're all out of ass. This is true. Yes, yes. This is a Netflix original courtesy of Will Ferrell, and it's kind of interesting just, like, looking up about this film, because apparently this is something that's a legit passion project for him, it seems. That, I didn't know that, but that does not surprise me, because it's an awfully specific thing to try and get made if you're not very, very invested in the project. It's mad specific. And just to kind of preface things, um, Will Ferrell, he's actually married to someone from Sweden, so that whole Scandinavian region is something that's obviously he's dealt with. And apparently he fell in love with the show Eurovision, which I did not even realize was an actual real-life show. So Seriously? Yeah, so I feel stupid about it. And a lot of people in the film are either previous contestants or previous winners or, or like, previous or current judges. Even Graham Norton, who has uh, extended cameo in the film, has some familiarity with having worked with Eurovision as well. And apparently Will Ferrell was in Sweden with his wife and their family and just fell in love with the show and just started watching it religiously, going to actual competitions in later years, and just completely engrossing himself in this whole singing competition, this international singing competition. And his genuine enthusiasm for Eurovision comes through. It The performances are schlocky, but they are schlocky in the dead-on kind of way. There, ah. This Eurovision is presented as very fun to be in and watch in this, and yeah, he gets the vibe right. 
Yeah, because you kind of think of it as this sort of, not necessarily a microcosm, but you have this sort of niche thing as it relates to, you know, popular music and dance music in certain parts of Europe. And for me, it kind of made me reminisce about my time going to high school in Montreal, because when I was living there, going to school, listening to music on the radio, there was a lot of prioritization of dance music. So you had like all of the Ace of Bass and Real McCoy and Vanga Boys and all those people who, you know, that was kind of the main music that I was hearing when I would, you know, listen to the radio or kids would be playing something at school. And it was so to the point that I actually was sort of longing for music that I would more familiarly hear and see about here in DC metro area where, you know, I didn't get to as much hip hop and R and B and there was one radio station that would play a block of it from eight to midnight every week, weeknight. And it was crazy because the first year I was there, I had to listen to it on my Walkman. And for you kids at home that don't know what a Walkman was, that's how you used to listen to music back in the stone age. So, yes, I, uh, I think that we should just elaborate for a moment. You see, before there was streaming, there was something called uh, CDs, compact discs. You may have heard of them from your parents or very older siblings or perhaps young aunts and uncles. But before that, there was this very strange thing called a cassette that actually had magnetic tape in a plastic shell that you inserted into a special machine designed just for that purpose and walked around with it, man. And Which, we thought this was great. And to be fair, it was at the oh, time. Yeah. That was something absolutely groundbreaking to be able to sort of just have your music wherever you go and be mobile. And obviously you go further back and you see like the genesis of that technology in the seventies even, but <clears throat> it was just kind of funny that if I wanted to listen to like hip hop and R&B music, I would have to listen to it on my Walkman sitting on the, my bed on my side with my head tilted a certain way because the frequency for the radio station was so weak. I think, yes. Uh, basically kids, a bad frequency is like a Wi-Fi signal. That's just really, really bad. Yeah, that's a that's a good comparison, actually. But just all of this is to preface why I'm getting sort of the vibes I'm getting when I'm watching Eurovision, because the setup for it is pretty standard, and I think it's goofy in tone the way you expect a Will Ferrell comedy to be goofy. And it's all this things going around with... Um, Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams characters, uh, Lars and Sigrid. Specifically, uh, Lars Eriksson and Sigrid Eric's daughter. But <laughs> Wait, Lars is... is pretty sure they're not brother and sister. Yeah, there, there's this really interesting running gag throughout the film where there's ambiguity as to how Lars and Sigrid should be sort of 
associated with one another, which kind of plays into something that I don't know. I was kind of on the fence with as far as the whole film is concerned because you have Pierce Brosnan in there playing uh, Lars's father, and which is funny because there's only like a 15 year age gap between Will Ferrell and Pierce Brosnan, but. Again, Pierce, this... that Pierce Brosnan comes across as considerably more mature, though. Oh, by a country mile. <laughs> like, Although, even without the trappings of this yeah. film, Pierce Brosnan <laughs> is, feels way more mature than Will Ferrell. Like, even if you looked at them independently of one another in real life. And in this, it all the more so. It the way that Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams look next to each other is a visual gag in and of itself because he is so, because they grew up together in, they're supposed to have known each other since they were what, four and six, but he's obviously about, well, he looks about 20 years older than she is because he's close to that. And of course, Rachel McAdams still looks younger than 40 yeah, uh, Will Ferrell is 52, and Rachel McAdams is 41. Yeah, and looks younger. Yes. And, yes, it's not a surprise. Yes, the running gag that they are brother and sister is, oca- that people assume they are brother and sister, is occasioned by more than their last names. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of funny, but at the same time you also have the fact that they're trying to push a romantic subplot between the two characters. So you think to yourself, uh, I don't know if it's meshing well, but in any event, these two characters, they've known each other their whole lives. They've grown up enjoying playing music together and for Lars specifically, he is completely infatuated with Eurovision and dreams of representing Iceland at Eurovision and and obviously winning. and winning and you obviously get the impression that they're not particularly good and <laughs> they play their local bar and it's just kind of funny because they want to sing other songs and the only thing that people at the bar want to hear them play is the song yeah called yeah Ding uh, yeah. dong, ding dong. And I, I got to disagree. I think Secret is always presented as being quite talented. Everybody yeah. agrees. Yeah, he's, he's the drag on the act. Yes, this is true. And it, uh, It's commented on in-universe many, many, many times. And it, it does obviously like make for certain storytelling cliches later on in the film, but just the way it's presented is kind of funny, and then you're still kind of trying to get completely on board, because I feel like I have the same love-hate relationship with Will Ferrell the way people have love-hate relationship with Adam Sandler. How so? Because um, you get the sense that Will Ferrell has a very specific-to-him shtick, and... <laughs> it feels still very much in that realm of the whole man-child comedian. And I feel like I understand people who are vehemently against that whole shtick. But at the same time, I still find examples where I don't mind it as much. 
And I wavered watching this film on whether or not I minded his, him doing his shtick here. It, I'm going to level with you. This movie got a lot better for me once I started. I, I could not concentrate on this movie while I was just watching this movie. I ended up watching the movie on half a screen and just rifling through pictures on the other side. And it made it a lot better. This is a background movie. I mean, it kind of is. And the other problem with it is, you know, when we talk about streaming films and most of them usually knowing to stick to a pretty conservative length of time, this one does not do that. Yeah, and this I, one is not much shorter than five than the Five Bloods. It really isn't, and that's something that you're definitely going to wrestle with because you're going into it with the mindset of this being a screwball comedy, and it's it's just over two hours long. It's a little over, yeah. So it's a little more than that, yeah. Yeah, so you have that to contend with, and that to kind of, you know challenge your overall enjoyment of it because I think that there are parts of it that are legitimately funny and things that definitely work. And I think the comedic chemistry between um, Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams works for the most part. I think yeah, it's, I'd say so. Because the thing when you have the whole man-child cliche in a movie like this, there's usually someone they're paired with who is the straight person trying to always bring them back down to earth. And, yeah, and that um, yeah, and that role is generally taken by the female love interest, the sitcom mom, the lady in the script. Yeah, the lady in a lot of these man-child movies. Whereas Secret is just as weird as he is. Well, yeah. actually, that's not true. Nobody is as weird as Lars is, but Sigrid <laughs> no. is but she definitely weird. Him. Yeah. Well, she, yes, because yeah. you have the whole uh, subplot of her visiting this mountainside or this, you know, or this hillside where there are these tiny houses where supposedly elves live. Which is true to, uh, which is actually a thing in Iceland. Yes. Uh People really do. I think it's tongue-in-cheek. Pray to the elves. Yeah. But it's... That actually brings me to one to my major criticism, which is this film has too many subplots. <sighs> this film has an A plot, a B plot, a C plot, a D plot, a Z plot. It maybe a Q plot. Maybe not. It, it really does, because you we definitely have to talk about how Alars and Sigrid actually end up getting into Eurovision, because they get, they they are in a, like, sort of like a preliminary competition first that's going to decide whether or not they'll be able to represent. I, um, I think actually this might verge into spoiler territory. This is some of the fun stuff. Okay, yeah, because it does involve this great running gag with who I did not realize until the end of the film was Demi Lovato. Yep, who is <laughs> very funny here. Well, yeah, which to her credit, she's doing a great job 
in the film. So I definitely appreciate it on that level. But yeah, it's like you said, there are so many subplots going on. And then you have the whole thing with Lars and his father. Um, Dan Stevens' character once he's introduced. And then there's the whole subplot um, about him personally that doesn't really go anywhere anyway. And there's a... Yes, there are just... I think Will... It it almost feels like Will Ferrell thought about all of the things he could do with this movie, and he thought about them so much that when he got the chance, he wasn't willing to cut any of the subplots he'd considered. Yeah. Yeah. There is not one sports movie cliche that doesn't get wedged in here at least a little bit. It's kind of ridiculous. That's completely ridiculous. And when it sticks to being cutely ridiculous, it's a fun movie, but it does get self-indulgent, which is the danger of passion projects. Especially when Will Ferrell is concerned. And especially when it's on streaming, which, as we've talked about before, generally leads to more compact movies. But man, when they sprawl, they sprawl. Yeah, because Netflix isn't a traditional studio. They're not even really necessarily thinking about the bottom line for each individual movie they're putting out. They're just like, we just want to make movies. And there's no one, there's no collection of producers or executives that are going to be micromanaging some of these productions to the extent where the creative vision is compromised. And yes, that could be a good thing in most situations. Here, not so much. The approach pays off more often than it doesn't, I would say. Not in this movie, but overall on the, on the Netflix platform. Yeah. They want to provide a diver- they want to provide a diversity of entertainment because they want to be a one-stop shop. And I think to their credit, they have done a better job than some people give them credit for in most cases because I remember certain films where everyone kind of dogpiled on them and I go ahead and watch it and I'm just thinking to myself, this is great. I'm happy this got made. And obviously there was no one that was, you know, at a major studio trying to give this film or filmmakers a chance to make the film their way. So for them to succeed through Netflix is usually pretty impressive. And even for the films that get shelved that were supposed to be theatrically released and then Netflix picks them up and says, okay, well, excuse me, make this a Netflix original. I appreciate that. I appreciate that aspect as well. And I think sometimes it works. And then other times you have something where you're just thinking to yourself, Oh, this needs, this needed more editing and editing. Yes. Yes. The word you're looking for (laughs) is editing. (laughs) Yes. and yeah, some of the net the yeah, like if Netflix really micromanaged its movies, it would have it would have fewer dogs, but would have fewer successes. Yeah, exactly. So I think they kind of look at it from a risk reward standpoint of, all right, and I probably. Like, I'm probably even overstating that, where I feel like, no, they're happy to take whatever turkeys they release and say, oh, well, and then they'll get at least 
one or two more chances within a year, within a calendar year, to put out a movie that movie or maybe even a limited series event that everyone talks about. And I feel like The Five Bloods was probably that movie for 2020 for Netflix. Where Yeah, it's I mean Netflix it's very much like a thrift store with some really great stuff and some real dogs and you just have to sift through it because you're not going to get anybody telling you where to go. I mean, it kind of feels almost like, you know, Canon Films, where, you know, Canon Films back in the 80s, they were just putting out anything. And every once in a while, they would have a previously renowned filmmaker make a, you know, quote-unquote prestige film for them. That would usually, you know, not necessarily pay off because these guys were schlockmeisters who, you know, when... You needed money for a certain project. You were waiting to see how another project went just to see how much money you could put into the budget of the next film you wanted to make. But every now and then they, you know, splurged and made something that people still talk about to this day. So I feel like Netflix is probably kind of taking that same approach. And you kind of, for all the, for all the times that people kind of rag on canon films, you see sort of the, I don't know, I guess sort of the DNA passed on as far as their approach to how they produce their films. And sometimes you just think to yourself, well, yeah, you're not always going to make a home run, but we're, you know, we're aiming for base hits more often than not anyway, is kind of the comparison I would make. Yeah. What is it? Uh, two pop out, two pop ups that get caught is less beautiful than a double play, but it produces exactly the same amount of outs. Yeah, I believe that was Calvin Trillin, except he said it better. Well, maybe, but I mean, for all of this, I don't want anyone to think that. Well, I don't want anyone to think that I personally dislike the film, but it is important, obviously, to highlight the issues that it has because you do have the fun moments to it. Like, even the song along at um, Dan Stevens's characters. Oh, that was um, so much fun. At, um, at his mansion. And, obviously, you have Dan Stevens in there, and he's playing a very flamboyant uh, contestant on Eurovision, and he's already massively popular anyway. And he's got... Oh, go for it. Yes, when this movie starts... Anytime this movie starts singing, it gets fun again. Yes. It lags between singing. <laughs> yeah, because he, I have to say, 21st Century Viking, that man had the voice of an angel. Yes, and now he is in Valhalla. Mm. But, like... He's part of the bar band at Valhalla. Oh, yeah. I guess it would be hall band because the Viking warriors assemble in a feasting hall. And oh, they're not beating yeah. the crap out of each other. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because you have like little snippets of all the other contestants that are competing. And you get to see just these really fun, silly songs that people are singing and doing so very earnestly. And it's such a sort of total shift because you have a song introduced that 
is like legitimately good and feels very heartfelt and you know it's not Rachel McAdams actually singing it but still the sentiment of it is there and you feel like okay kind of the same way folks wanted an actual soundtrack to um, always be my baby because Randall Park performs a bunch of songs in it, including the classic I Punched Keanu Reeves. Does he do his own singing on that? Well, he's not singing, he's rapping. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, Randall, Randall Park will, you know, will get in a, in, a, in a rhyme cipher and just, you know, lay it down. Like, you should look up a video with him, David Diggs, Wayne Brady, and a few other people of them just, like, all you know, freestyling in a studio together. It's actually pretty, it's actually pretty damn good. I really should see Always Be My Maybe. I just yes, have you, been putting it off. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. It's a great film. But um, here in Eurovision, it's just, it's adding to the comedy. It really, it really works for the most part. Um, one of the my favorite scenes and one of my favorite um, lot exchanges of dialogue in the film is just after Lars gets the notification about um, about him and Cigarette going to Eurovision, and <laughs> he he's very enthused about it and so enthused that um, he rings this bell in the center of town. <laughs> And then it smash cuts to a scene of him with one of the police officers. And the exchange goes, I'm sure it's very exciting for you, Lars, but you must know the emergency, the emergency signal is for life and death situations. Yeah, and rightly so. It's a fishing town. When somebody's yeah. ringing the bell, it generally means that the Coast Guard has to get called out. Yeah. But to uh, which Lars replies, and I could argue that this town is near death. Yes, because that's the kind of guy Lars is. He he vibrates on his own wavelength. I mean, he's not wrong, though. That's the crazy thing. Is he, though? I, that's another thing. The di- It feels like it's informed, because the dying small town that needs somebody to bring up its spirits is just another competition cliche. But unlike, for example, the small town in uh, Blow the Man Down, or a lot of small towns in this genre, there's no real indication that the town is dying. Everybody seems pretty happy. Everything seems pretty cheerful. In fact, the fact that the town seems to be doing pretty well makes his insistence that he's going to bring it back to life all the more funny. He's not just, this is not just a sports, a group of competition cliches. He is living in his, a cliche made in his own mind. Mm-hmm. He, the town has to be dying so he can save it. Whereas the town, uh, it's got fish, it's got good looking Icelandic people, seems to have plenty of beer. It's got its own theme song. Yeah, yeah, ding <laughs> dong, which they provide. It. He is, in a movie, in a parody movie, he is the most parodic thing of all. Mm. Lars is a parody within a parody. And that's actually one of the things I like about it. Because while he is, and while this whole movie is silly as heck, it is not mean-spirited. That I will give you. Yeah, if it 
if it had turned even a little bit snarky, it would be terrible. As it is, it's lighthearted. Even when it fails, much like Team Iceland, even when it goes off the rails, you want, you're pushing for this movie to succeed because it is good-hearted. It's there to entertain you. No, that I will actually agree with. That's why I'll, you know, between that and the fact that you see what Will Ferrell, like, actually went through to, like, get it made, because obviously this was a big passion project for him. This is something he really wanted to do. So I don't want to knock the film too much because you want to be appreciative of the work that people put into their craft. And I think for all of the times when Will Ferrell has not succeeded with his comedy shtick, and Lord knows I haven't even watched Holmes and Watson because apparently that was profoundly abysmal. And usually I don't want to just take other people's reviews or thoughts on the film at face value, but I have yet to find a single person that has had anything good to say about that film. And of co- and even if you had forgotten the lesson, Jem would have uh, reminded you. There is not generally a conspiracy among critics to say... <laughs> To give a zero on Rotten Tomatoes, or what was it that Jem had? A three, a five on Rotten Tomatoes? I think it it had like a five percent. I don't know, but yeah, because having watched that film, again, hashtag tangent, but quick hashtag tangent, but yeah, having watched that film um, made me feel how, how, um, what was it? Crap, I'm trying to rem- Never mind. Fuck it. No, 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 no. Now we, now we gotta do this. We gotta. Reminded you what? How? Are you gonna I, make I was, another Wagner reference again? No, I was actually going to reference um, The Crow. Like, if you remember the scene when T-Bird's about to die, and he starts reciting the poetry that he found in Eric and Shelley's um, apartment as he was about to murder him? Not to murder them. And something about feeling how awful goodness is. <laughs> That's how I felt watching Gem in the Holograms. Like I was duct taped into a vintage muscle car ready to be driven off a pier with a grenade in my groin and all of my other explosive accoutrement surrounding me in the passenger and back seat. That's yeah, that's how... literally what you said about the ring cycle. You told me you weren't going to make another Wagner reference. We talked about this. I apologize for nothing. <laughs> but, Opera yeah. freak. <laughs> yeah, I'll go rail you for that one. But, um, yeah, so I feel like as far as, like, the hit and miss of... Um, Will Ferrell's filmography. I feel like um, um, I feel like Eurovision fits somewhere in the middle. It's not bad, but it's not hitting the highs of stuff like you know the other guys or uh, Talladega Nights. I don't think it's on that level at all. No, and I think it, it lost points with me just because of all the Shaggy Dog uh, subplots. Yeah. If it had been more, if the movie had been more disciplined, 
I think its charm sort of shown up better. And I can only assume that the need for all of the subplots is because there were a lot of cliches that they wanted to deliberately subvert. Oh, no, I'm sure it's not that I think it wasn't deliberate. I just don't think it was a good choice. Okay. Yeah, Will Ferrell, he obviously knew what he wanted to do with this movie, which is that he wanted to make the Mighty Ducks in Eurovision. (laughs) But... He just shouldn't have done that many subplots. Yeah. So, I guess we're on to ratings? I guess we are. Yes. So, on, on, on the point system, like they have in Eurovision, um, what, what, what would you say are the points you're giving the film overall? Well, let me see. Uh, if the Eurovision point system is 8, 10, 12, yes? Yes. Well, I got to say, I am not giving it any points because it is not even close to my top three movies. But I will give it a two thumbs up and a reasonably enthusiastic clap from the crowd. Mm. Or uh, the way I was thinking was 2.5 audio tunes out of five. Mm. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's about, I mean, it's about, it's a two and a half film. Yeah, it's a two and a half out of five film. It absolutely has a right to exist. I would, in fact, and might go back and watch a a couple of the good singing scenes. Yeah, because the singing scenes are all great. And even, like, the whole gag with the windmill. I mean, not with the windmill, with the hamster wheel. Oh, God. Um, Oh, yeah, shades of... Speaking of strange subplots, I don't know if you know how Isadora Duncan died. No, I do not. Uh, she was she was a modern dance pioneer, exceptional artist, but she died. But she died when her overlong scarf got caught in the. It was either under the wheels of or in the door of a speeding car, and she was choked to death. So that whole hamster wheel, long scarf thing, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that was a tongue-in-cheek reference to the way she died. I would not be surprised if it were, because... I'd be surprised if it weren't. Yeah, because that that's literally what I just said. No, you said you wouldn't be surprised if it were. I wouldn't be. Su- I would be surprised if it weren't. I feel like that's based... I'm not going to argue with this uh, you with you with you, Cohen. Not doing it. Yeah. You yeah. Okay. No, we're not doing it. All right. We love each other too much, is how I feel. Um, I, I I can't agree with you more than by agreeing with you. Okay, fair. Yeah, but apparently that was not completely, but somewhat inspired by a previous contestant on Eurovision incorporating a. Some sort, something comparable to a hamster wheel in their actual performance. So, as ludicrous as it looks, as you're watching it play out from beginning to end, even seeing where it goes, it's still not as ridiculous as it would be if you were encountering it in real life, which apparently a lot of people did, is all I'm saying. Yeah, Eurovision is big and campy and out there. That's one of the things that has made it 
so beloved for decades. I guess. And I think that's something where the inherent weirdness of the characters gets undercut just enough to kind of see where everything's going. And you have this idea of people saying, oh, well, these are weirdos. And I think even Graham Norton had another great line where he's referring, he's talking about their name where it's like, yeah, they're called Fire Saga and why they're here is anyone's guess. <laughs> well, it's, it's just so Graham matter- Norton is a kind of, that's kind of Graham Norton shtick in real life too on his talk <laughs> show and sort of, he's a sharp tongued man. He, he, he's, he's very spicy. He, that's, that's, that's something I will say about Graham Norton. So you have to be prepared for that. And even in watching a lot of, you know, disassociated clips from the Graham Norton show, I've never watched a full episode to get the full context of who this personality is that everyone seems to love. But he does do a great job of just being not necessarily deadpan, but very matter-of-factly in everything that he's saying. And I think that's something that really works to the film's advantage. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, all of the peripheral... I don't have a problem with any of the peripheral performances. Some of the Mm -hmm. plot... Even when some of the plot lines shouldn't be there, I can't criticize anybody who's running those... uh, Yeah, I can't criticize the people in those subplots. No, no. And again, for me, I loved Pierce Brosnan as... (laughs) Lars's father, just because I feel like as Pierce Brosnan's gotten older, he's doing a lot of different performances and films that feel very against type, especially if you grew up watching Remington Steele and then the transition to him in the Bond films, and then just seeing his career choices after leaving that franchise. It's all very interesting. You have, you know, a smattering of some nice comedic supporting roles. And then you have, you know, films like The Foreigner, where he was actually the bad guy in that film, the one with uh, Jackie Chan. And And then this one, I think, though, I assume that they was brought in or approached for this because he had been in Mamma Mia!, the ABBA musical? Yes, yes. And uh, I didn't actually see the sequel, but I think he's in that too. Yes. But, so um, once you've been in one ABBA-based musical, you can pretty much just slot into any other one. I mean, exactly. That's the magic of ABBA. It really is. I mean, that that is something that, you know, the Swedes and the rest of Scandinavia, they worship at the altar of ABBA. And unlike Ace of Base, ABBA has never been tied in with any neo-Nazi movements. That's that's a real thing in the world. I'm not no, kidding. No, no, I, I, I know. That's why I'm just like... <sighs> I only bring it up because there are some people who still stand Ace of Base who don't realize that. <laughs> because and musically, those guys were great. I mean... You, they were no Venga boys. the venga boys are coming and everybody's jumping new york to san francisco an inner city disco this has been your yearly venga boys 
Thank you for watching. Um, no, um, I, I kind of always, yeah, I usually preferred Ace of Base to Vega Boys. Sorry. Well, yes, but. of course, because Ace of Base were, Ace of Base were perceptibly better musicians. But ABBA, it's hard. I mean, we weren't around for it, but there were a few no, years I mean, in the seventies, where ABBA, it wasn't like they were just a Scandinavian pop sensation. They were the biggest band in the world. Yes. Yeah, no, I know. I remember. Or not remember, but I remember hearing about that. And it makes sense when you listen to their music, because a lot of those songs still slap. I mean, they feel very perennial. Yeah, the... Mamma Mia, sure, here <laughs> I go again. Like, in context, it seems a bit nonsensical, but at the same time, no, it's just... Something hard. It's very comfort foodish. It's yeah. Can you hear the drums, Fernando? Yeah. It's like I feel like it's they six. Uh, they walked so um, Banana Ramba could run and stumble at every other step. <laughs> Go yeah. back and listen to Banana Ramba. No, no, you. You are not wrong. The that guy. <laughs> Robert De Niro's I... waiting, and he's speaking Italian. What the, the fuck does that mean? The goddess on the mountain top. Yeah, I mean, if, that, you, if you only know Banana Rama from their cover songs, I know. You don't really know Banana Rama. <laughs> I think they did a really good job with their cover of Venus. Oh, no. Don't get me wrong. Cover of Venus is absolutely classic. That defined a generation. That's how impactful that crap was. And, yeah, even their dancing in that video was kind of terrible by the end of it. It was kind of embarrassing. But, yeah, you go back and try to encapsulate the entirety of their career, and you just realize that they're discography was just full of incomprehensible garbage that some of it works. Obviously, Cruel Summer, again, a great little hit for them, I think, was also, was that also a cover? I'm not sure. Bottom line, everyone remembers Cruel Summer. Karate Kid put that joint on the map. They even had a cover of it done in the YouTube series Cobra Kai recently. So, the, you know, they uh, they acknowledge the impact that that song had in the original film soundtrack. But, yeah, you just As think... opposed to Karate Kid Part 2, which Oscar-nominated song, Gloria Love, yes, Peter Cicera. Yes. Yeah. The reason that Pat Morita, and you can look this up because I've seen it, Pat Morita and a couple of, uh, and I want to say it was Telly Savalas and another guy performed at the Oscars that year. But it was definitely Pat Morita and two other guys who you would not be expecting to do a song and dance number at the Oscars, but gosh darn it. Oh my God, I'm going to look this up after. Yeah, you are. Morning. You are. Oh Lord. Pat Morita was just a national treasure. He was an international treasure. Yes, he was an international treasure. But Pat Morita, like Sade, is for all the people. 
Oh, Sade, Sade is for everyone. That was that's still the most expensive concert I ever went to. It was that's, worth it. Hell yeah, it was worth it. I spent that's what I said. I spent two hundred dollars. My sister and I drove to Baltimore, an hour away, to see Sade, and she did not disappoint at all. I love that woman. Bottom line, I'm right. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, if any of you viewers and or listeners don't like Sade, don't tell us because we will have to make fun of you using your Instagram or Twitter handle or whatever you identify yourself by. And then you might get mocked by people who you care about. You might even disappear under mysterious circumstances. Yes, because you're ashamed. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I meant. You are the worst at not incriminating yourself before the fact. Or I'm the best at no. incriminating myself before the fact. No. Yeah. You're not. No? No, you're not. <sighs> you're really bad at not incriminating yourself, but you're honestly not that great at incriminating yourself either. This is also true. Mm-hmm. In any event, if you want to reach out to us on the social media platforms, we are on Facebook at CTN Podcast. We've got the Instagram on there as well at Casting the Net Podcast. Please go ahead and give us your recommendations on movies you would like for us to watch, or if you'd like to share your opinions on the movie we just talked about on this episode, go ahead and shoot us an email at castingthenetpodcast at gmail.com. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Go ahead and hit us up with those star ratings. Follow us on SoundCloud. Write a little mini review. Let us know how you feel about the show. If you want to give us five stars, we'd be more than happy to accept that. But even if you don't, go ahead and maybe just, I don't know, maybe still give us five stars just to see what happens. Because in the grand scheme of things, flattery will get you everywhere. Except to Eurovision. For that, you need luck. And, and lighting. And unfortunate circumstances for other contestants. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. So until next time, stay home, stay safe, stay sexy. And until next time, keep on streaming and have fun. Because you have no choice.